Hello, and welcome to Musings on History, Episode 4.5, Socialism, Part 1. Welcome back to the Musings on History podcast. If this is your first episode, thank you for joining me. For the four, for the past four episodes, I've been talking about the history of certain words that have been misused in the general lexicon. In an effort to increase understanding of these words and the present historical context in which they're used. The word for this episode is socialism, as you may know. And as you have heard, it's a two-parter. It's also the last word in this series, so I hope you enjoy it and learn some new things about socialism. The podcast now has an official Twitter account, which is Musings History. That's capital M-U-S-I-N-G, capital H-I-S-T-O-R-Y. I've also started breaking up the episodes into chapters, which I think will help make the content flow better. Now, I'm going to structure these two two episodes on socialism by region in order to provide a globally relevant perspective. Also, I get tired of discussing the same socialist revolutions over and over. I'm also going to explain what market and non-market socialism are and the differences between socialism, communism, and fascism, as well as the Marxian theory on socialism. Before I begin with African socialism... I want to give a brief description of what socialism is. The Webster's Dictionary defines socialism as a political and economic theory of social organization, which advocates that the means of production, distribution, and exchange should be owned or regulated by the community as a whole. So, for something to be considered truly socialist, it must be public-owned, operated, and regulated. This often gets conflated with state-owned, but the state is not the necessarily the people. And something being state-owned does not necessarily mean it follows socialist means of production, which I will explain later. So, as the chapter title suggests, I'm going to switch things up a bit and begin in Africa. If I were detailing this in the linear fashion, then the history of socialism would begin in Europe with the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution and blah, 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 blah. But that's how everybody studies and teaches and talks about and thinks about history. And personally, I think that's one, boring as hell, and two, Eurocentric. I started this podcast to provide different perspectives on history, so that means I need to do things differently, obviously. African socialism is distinct from European and other Western forms of socialism in the values it tries to emphasize and in its organization. And that is mostly due to the history of colonialism on the continent. While it's true that socialist themes like communal living do have roots in pre-colonial Africa, these examples, which are called proto-socialism, are not sufficient enough to come to the conclusion that African socialist thought developed in a vacuum outside of Western influences. See, due to centuries of colonialism, with the apex being the Berlin Conference of 1884 and the mad scramble for Africa, Africans and their societies were steadily inundated with Western dress, thought, governance, etc. So it's no surprise that in the mid-20th century, as most of the continent was struggling against the capitalist, liberal, Western colonial powers, 
they would lean towards socialism, which would be the antithesis of the colonial rule that they were trying to throw off as a means of securing independence. Future African heads of state, such as Julius Nyeri of Tanzania, I'm sorry if I don't pronounce these names right, Modibo Keita of Mali, Leopold Senghor of Senegal, Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana, Seko Toure of Guinea, Thomas Sankara of Burkina Faso, and Nelson Mandela and Stephen Biko of South Africa were all socialists who believed in decolonization through wealth distribution and a large public sector workforce, incorporation of African identity and pre-colonial forms of identification, and the avoidance of social stratification in society. Now, I did not include Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba of the Democratic Republic of the Congo as a socialist independence leader because while Lumumba was ideologically to the left of his rival, the president, Joseph Kasa Vubu, and he did rely on the Soviet Union for economic and military aid rather than the capitalist Western countries, he himself never espoused socialism as an economic or social platform although he did encompass all Congolese people in his vision for the nation, irrespective of their tribal affiliation. Lumumba was more of a humanist who espoused egalitarianism and social justice without ever committing to a specific platform. In contrast, the leaders I mentioned were all adroit socialists and Marxist-Leninists, both in principle and to a lesser extent in practice. These men and others sought to decolonize African societies through a return to traditionally African principles and concepts, believing that class struggle was essentially a Western concept that had been imposed on Africans during colonialism. An example of this would be the division between the Hutus and Tutsis in Rwanda, a former Belgian colonial possession. Prior to being colonized by the German Empire in 1885, The Kingdom of Rwanda was a centralized polity in Rwanda, Burundi, and parts of DRC in Uganda from the 11th century AD. The ruling class were predominantly Tutsi, while the majority of the population, around 85%, were Hutu. However, some in the ruling class were Hutu. But the point is that while these identities existed in the minds of pre-colonial Rwandans, There was no clear-cut social status that one belonged to on the basis of their tribal affiliation until colonialism. The Hutus and Tutsis of the Kingdom of Rwanda operated similar to the classes of Brahmin in India. The Hutus were generally farmers, healers, and craftsmen. Again, this does not denote lesser status. Farmers and craftsmen aren't automatically peasants outside of Europe. While the Tutsis were said to be imbued with the warrior spirit and thus made up the bulk of the military ranks. The Mwami, or king, was usually Tutsi because of his responsibility to protect the kingdom, while his council of advisors was usually Hutu because of the Hutus' outsized influence in providing food and infrastructure for the kingdom. Now, this all changed in the 18th and 19th centuries with the arrival of the Europeans. Under the kingship of Mwami, Wabugiri, Rwanda began conquering surrounding lands and labeled all the people that were conquered Hutu. This changed the meaning of being a Hutu from an ethnic identity to a social one and a marginalized social identity at that. He was advised by the Germans in this who assumed that the Hutus were peasants because they farmed and were craftsmen and assumed that the Tutsis were the superior class because they were warriors. 
it generally speaks to the power. It really speaks to the power of words that the designation of Hutu could have its meaning completely changed in less than a century. And that, dear listeners, is semiotics in action. Another way that African socialist thinkers sought to transform their societies was by taking African societal concepts and radicalizing them by making them socialist in practice. Julius Nyeri did this with the Swahili word ujamaa, which means extended family, and reflects the belief that a person becomes a person through their participation in their community. Ujamaa as a word and concept did not have a political alignment or a politically charged meaning in pre-colonial Tanzania, but post-colonialism, Nyeri used Ujamaa as the basis of his autarkic African development model, which he outlined in 1967 in his Arusha Declaration. The Arusha Declaration was Tanu, Nyeri's political party, platform for economic development and is broken into five parts. The Tanu Creed, which outlines the principles of socialism in Tanzania and the role of government in Tanzanian society. The policy of socialism, which outlined how Tanzania would engage with other countries, namely in a diplomatic fashion that emphasized cooperation in the sharing of ideas and resources rather than through exploitation. The policy of self-reliance, whereby Tanzanians would see it as a national duty to care for one another. The Tanu membership, which outlined what a member of the party must adhere to, and the Arusha resolution, which declared how Tanu planned to carry out its explicitly socialist program. So basically, Nayeri found a Swahili word that already had a meaning in his society and then expanded said meaning to fit his idea of an African socialist agenda. In South Africa, Ubuntu as Zoza word that means humanity and like Ujama stresses that humanity in the individual is found through their connection to their community is a similar political philosophy espoused by Nelson Mandela and the Anglican Archbishop Desmond Tutu as part of his Truth and Reconciliation Movement in post-apartheid South Africa. There's also the Yuhuru Movement, which was founded by an African-American, Omali Yeshitela, and is based in the United States. While not a continental African socialist uh, party, it is nonetheless based on the Swahili word for freedom, Uhuru. Just so you know, this trend of taking words and attaching an entirely new political meaning to them that didn't exist previously isn't specific to Africans. The French, the Germans, Italians, Japanese have all done this as well. But I do wonder why so many diasporic black movements tend to choose Swahili words versus words and concepts from West Africa, since we are mostly West African descended. The Uhuru movement is a pan-African socialist movement that provides a historical material explanation for the social and economic conditions of African people worldwide. For those who are not aware, historical materialism is a methodology of historiography made popular by Karl Marx, who called it a materialist conception of history. Essentially, history unfolds the way it does, both on a micro and macro scale, because of a society's mode of production and how we humans within that society relate to those modes of production. So back to like the kingdom of Rwanda, pre-colonial historical materialism, a farmer was just a farmer. He did not occupy a lesser position in society because he was a farmer. He was a farmer because, I don't know, God made him one or whatever, but that did not necessarily make him a peasant or lower class or anything like that. 
post-colonialism that change. So that's kind of what historical materialism it means. It kind of boils us down to our economic function in society. Nonetheless, it is a scientific way of viewing history, and it was used by Marx and Engels to differentiate Marxism from the utopian socialism espoused by like Henri de Saint-Simon and Charles Fourier. The Yehuru movement believes that capitalism is imperialism developed at its highest stage, which is in contrast to Leninism, which believes the opposite. The Yehuru movement platform encourages international solidarity between all African peoples, active participation in one's community, and economic self-sufficiency, similar to Nayeri's Artakic Ujama program. The African socialist tradition is similar to the Western tradition in that it espouses redistribution of wealth, but the history of colonialism and European powers outsized economic influence over Africa. In 19 sub-Saharan African countries, only 16% of the natural resources are owned by indigenous Africans, and that's like present day. So this means that African socialism is primarily concerned with ending the siphoning of its natural resources that fund European economic ventures, wanting instead to use their own resources to build the infrastructure of their own nations, which is, duh, you know. It also presents a paradox for European socialism, which I will explain later. Chapter 2, Socialism in North America. The 19th century in the Americas was a time of revolution, heavy immigration, and nation building. My neighbors to the north, Canada, became a confederation in 1867, but remained part of the British Commonwealth of Nations. The first socialist party, the Socialist Labor Party, was formed in 1898 in Vancouver, followed by the Socialist Party of British Columbia in 1901. The first nationwide socialist party was the Socialist Party of Canada, founded in 1904 in Ontario. Similar to the United States, the Industrial Revolution in Canada made some capitalists extremely wealthy, while the working classes lived and worked in squalor. This led to the formation of labor unions and the deployment of general strikes as workers sought to agitate for more rights and less corruption, as well as a more equal distribution of wealth. After the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917, socialism and communism became increasingly more attractive to the working classes in Canada who felt the government was not being responsive to their needs. This coincided with the Fabian Movement and the development of the British Labour Party across the Atlantic and Great Britain. The Great Depression saw the election of the first Communist Party MP in Canada, Fred Rose. Rose was a Polish-Canadian trade union organizer who was later convicted of being a Soviet spy during Canada's version of the Red Scare in 1942. He lost his seat and returned to Poland after failed attempts to find a job in Canada, and his Canadian citizenship was revoked in 1957. In part two of this episode, I'm going to probably rant about the Allies' misplaced priorities in regards to communism in the USSR, which was mostly spurred on by Churchill, who I hate. But that comes later. Post-World War II, Canada was part of the Bretton Woods Agreement, a time period which economists called the golden age of capitalism. But it was also an era where many global North nations, such as Canada, the United Kingdom, the Nordic countries, France, and West Germany, all implemented socialist policies like um, 
universal health care, health education, higher education subsidies, social housing, and home loan guarantees in the case of the United States. The post-war Bretton Woods era was also a golden age for trade unions, which leads me to believe that the golden part of the capitalism that these economists are usually referring to was the imperialism that these countries inflicted on the global south. But that, too, comes later. In modern-day Canadian politics, the NDP, or New Democratic Party, is a social democratic party and one of the most left-wing in the Canadian parliament. The party is currently led by MP Jagmeet Singh, I'm sorry, Jagmeet, whose politics I find pretty lukewarm, like I find most Global North Social Democrats, but he does have a nice beard and a nice smile and good taste in soca, so he's all right. Moving further south, we come to the United States, who has a rather checkered and violent history with socialism like they do with everything else. Early in the history of the country, you have groups like the Shakers and the Quakers, which sounds like a cool band name when you think about it, Shakers and the Quakers, I don't know. They lived in the rural countryside of the mid-Atlantic states in these communes and maintained a relatively egalitarian society. But the majority of Americans have long labored under the spirit of uh, individualism and unfettered capitalism. The Louisiana Purchase, the Homestead Acts, and the California Gold Rush of 1848 fostered a sense of rugged individualism that Americans, by and large, still hold on to. Images of Daniel Boone and Sam Houston striking out into the wilderness and making their own way with no handouts is imprinted in the minds of Americans from the time that they are small children. Conveniently forgetting, of course, that Europeans wouldn't have made it past Jamestown without the ample assistance of the indigenous Native Americans and the work of millions of African slaves. But in the American Gilded Age, socialist agitators like Eugene Debs and the anarchist Italian immigrants Sacco and Vanzetti shone a very harsh light on the disparity in the quality of life that captains of industry like Rockefeller and J.P. Morgan and the Scottish immigrant businessman Andrew Carnegie versus the men, women, and children who worked for them and made them so extremely wealthy. Books like Upton Sinclair's The Jungle openly advocated for socialist revolution. In the early 20th century, it was marked by general worker strikes in Seattle, Chicago, New York, Boston, and Washington, D.C., that often crossed the color line in a typically racially segregated America. In 1930, 500 black belt communists, cotton pickers from England, Arkansas, went on strike and demanded better wages and living conditions, and the movement soon picked up speed all across the agricultural belt of the South. The Communist Party of America helped the farmers organize, and by 1931, they had reported modest gains in income and guarantee rations so that they would not starve when food prices rose. But one thing about Americans, they have a penchant for violence. And in July of that same year, the leader, Tommy Gray, and his entire family, including his children, were brutally assaulted and his home burnt to the ground. His brother Ralph was later shot and killed, and the white citizens of Tallapoosa County, Alabama, instigated a race riot against the black community, killing 12 and wounding hundreds of others. Even the threat of violence did not stop workers from organizing. In 1932, around 43,000 World War I veterans and their families marched to Washington, D.C. in what is now called the Bonus Army to demand that Congress and the President, at the time Herbert Hoover, 
honor the bonus certificates they had been issued in 1924, which they were told they could not cash out until 1948. Many of the veterans had been out of work since the start of the Great Depression, and the government had refused to address any of their concerns. Hoover's response was to send out an Army contingent led by Army Chief of Staff General Douglas MacArthur with six tanks to clear out the camp set up by the Bonus Army across Washington, D.C. The veterans were fired upon by the U.S. Army, and two veterans later died of their wounds while none of the veterans' concerns were even addressed. I have to wonder what was going on in those soldiers' heads as they fired on men who had been wearing the same uniform as them less than 10 years prior. Seeing your employer not honor their promises and then violently kick people around when they're asked to abide by their agreements has to do something to you mentally, right? Under the Roosevelt administration, which lasted from 1933 to 1945, Roosevelt utilized those Keynesian economics I told you about in episode 4.3 and used the government to create demand where the consumer market had failed to do so after World War I. He honored the certificates to the veterans and created several new federal agencies from the Social Security Administration to the Works Progress Administration, which carried out public infrastructure projects and also funded anthropological and creative work. Although Dwight D. Eisenhower gets the credit for the development of the federal highway system, it was FDR's WPA and TVA, Tennessee Valley Authority, that laid the groundwork for the building of interstate infrastructure, especially in the South, where no major infrastructure projects had been undertaken since before the Civil War. The TVA brought hydroelectric power and jobs to seven states in the South, and the WPA funded the research of Zora Neale Hurston, who provided some of the best-known recollections, recordings, and photographs of former slaves. Her last book, Barracoon, which is the biography of one of the last slaves brought to America from Africa, was partially funded through WPA. Most of Roosevelt's New Deal agencies were closed down or scaled down as World War II revived the agricultural, financial services, and manufacturing centers of the United States, but some programs, such as Social Security, have become cornerstones of what passes for a social safety net in the United States. Later, I will discuss the different types of socialism, with FDR's government stimulus falling into the democratic socialism category, and some critique on each form. In the waning years of World War II, as Congress prepared for the transition to a post-wartime economy, they passed the Montgomery GI Bill, which provided subsidies to veterans that enabled them to learn trades and get degrees, buy homes, and start businesses so there wouldn't be a repeat of the bonus army. Legally and on paper, these benefits were available to all veterans, but Southern Democrats like Mississippi Senator John Rankin used every tactic available to ensure that the one million African-American veterans who risked their lives in Europe and Asia would find themselves ineligible for these benefits. Benefits were only available to veterans who were discharged honorably, and a disproportionate number of black GIs were not given honorable discharges. For those that did manage to get an honorable discharge, redlining made it difficult for them to qualify for a loan, and segregated schools meant that many of the trade schools were not open to them. The American Civil Rights Movement meant to address these and other grievances, and the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 were meant to outlaw discrimination on the basis of race, color, sex, or national origin. 
On paper, it desegregated America's schools and outlawed housing covenants, but enforcement was largely left to the states, which meant that Southern and Midwestern Democratic-controlled governments either underfunded programs designed to desegregate or that terror groups like the KKK used violence to intimidate black people who attempted to exercise their legally enshrined rights. Today, while Americans of all races, sexual orientations, genders, and national origins have made great strides in America, African Americans and Latinos still make up the poorest in society and face discrimination in employment, housing, and in the justice system. So long story short, America is generally just too damn racist to ever really embrace socialism, despite the efforts of labor leaders like Cesar Chavez and former U.S. Vice President Henry A. Wallace, the man who gets the praise that FDR, who deserves the praise that FDR gets. Chapter 3, Latin America and the Caribbean. So Latin America and the Caribbean is where socialism has had the most experimentation in the Western Hemisphere, but not without struggle. Following the death of Simón Bolívar and the dissolution of Gran Colombia, the newly independent South America went through a series of swings between extremely right-wing governments and extremely left-wing governments, and to be honest, they still do. Black and indigenous Central and South Americans, like their cousins in North America, were marginalized, and in the case of Argentina and Chile, purged from the population and most suffered under some form of oppression. Central and South American economies were also considered a testing ground for American capitalism. And in the 1960s and 70s, in solidarity with and largely inspired by the civil rights movement in North America and the independence movements in South and in Africa, South Americans also fought for their rights and freedoms. And like the independence leaders in Africa, many saw socialism as a means of closing the racial wealth gaps and ensuring a fair shake in life. The Movimiento Negro or Negro Movement of Brazil was a sustained organization of various Afro-Brazilian resistance organizations that combated fascist movements and racism in Brazilian society. During the Estado Novo dictatorship of Getulio Vargas, all political parties, including the Afro-Brazilian Congress and the more explicitly socialist Frente Negra Brasileira or Brazilian Black Front, were banned and Afro-Brazilians relied on art, particularly theater and music, as a form of resistance and to boost the consciousness of Afro-Brazilians. Obvious dos nascimento, sorry, I don't speak uh, Portuguese, an Afro-Brazilian scholar, artist, and politician founded the 10 Black Experimental Theater, which put on many plays and musical performances, including the first performance of Black Orpheus, which was later adapted into a major motion picture starring Marpessa Don and Breno Mello. Now, I'm sure most of us all know about the most famous socialist revolution in Latin America, the Cuban Revolution, which, despite the endless attempts by the American government to break the Cuban people, continues not only to survive, but in some cases thrive. Even with the American embargo, less than 3% of Cubans suffer from malnutrition because of a government program that ensures nobody goes hungry. This is compared to 12.3% of the American population. Cuba also has a lung cancer vaccine and ended mother-baby HIV transmission in the last decade. 
Cuba has 14 doctors for every citizen and is considered a world leader in biomedical research, which it has managed to accomplish without exploiting poor minorities like in the case of the Tuskegee experiments or Henrietta Lacks. While not perfect, the Cuban Revolution did drastically increase the quality of life for its black citizens who were little more than serfs in pre-modern, uh, sorry, pre-revolution Cuba. But socialism wasn't just a tool used to throw off oppression in Cuba. In Grenada, Trinidad and Tobago, and Haiti, socialist activists sought to fix the wealth gaps and the racist neocolonial policies that caused them on their islands as well. As early as the 1930s, trade unionists and labor leaders like Grenada-born Uriah Buzz Butler organized and fought the British colonial government to improve the lives of the working classes. Between 9 June and 6 July 1937, Butler led a series of strikes and labor riots in southern Trinidad, affecting many major industries such as the oil and sugarcane industries, which led to the British to call for his arrest. He was imprisoned by the colonial government throughout the duration of World War II and was deemed a dangerous radical by moderates in the People's National Movement, which was the more mainstream Home Rule Party. His Home Rule Party captured two seats in the 1956 general election, but were not allowed to stand. As economic and social conditions continued to worsen in Trinidad and Tobago, Working class people began to be disenchanted with the moderate course of action, and the National Joint Action Committee was formed on the campus of UWI St. Augustine in 1969 by Geddes Granger, who was later known as Makandal Naga. Although the Trinidadian Prime Minister, Dr. Eric Williams, was himself a black man who wrote his dissertation on the connections between capitalism and slavery in the West Indies, His response to the growing militancy was pretty tepid, and he gave a speech entitled I Am For Black Power, and he introduced a 5% unemployment levy that was designed to ease the nearly 20% unemployment rate. Like most fiscal policies during this time, it only contributed to stagflation that didn't abate until the Yom Kippur War of 1973 temporarily cut off the world's major oil suppliers, and then Trinidad and Tobago was able to sell more of their oil and national gas at a competitive price because um, Middle Eastern oil was pretty much not available for sale at at that point. The Trinidadian Black Power Movement escalated in April 1970 when a protester, Basil Davis, was killed by police. In response, oil and sugar workers threatened a general strike, which would have effectively crippled the economy and put Dr. Williams in a very vulnerable position. He then declared a state of emergency and arrested 15 black power leaders. That led to a partial mutiny of the Trinidad Defense Force, led by Rafiq Shaw and Rex LaSalle, who held many hostages, some of them U.S. Navy, at a base in in Teterum. Although the mutiny was contained and the mutineers surrendered on 25 April, the threat of a unified cross-sector worker strike still remained, and the Prime Minister made many speeches in which he attempted to sympathize with and identify with the Black Power movement. He reshuffled his cabinet, removing two white Canadian-born members, and then he partially nationalized the banks, where they had all been previously owned by British and Canadian investors. Later, Dr. Williams' protege, the Honorable Patrick Manning, became the leader of the People's National Movement and served as prime minister twice, 
first from 1991 to 1995 and again from 2001 to 2010. Under Manning's leadership, free university education within the CARICOM region was established, as well as a two-tier health system modeled after the German Bismarck system, where those who couldn't afford private insurance received state-funded health care services. There are some who believe that the social democratic programs advanced by the workers' unions and the PNM have led to a culture of over-reliance on the government in Trinidad and Tobago, and they advocate for more emphasis on supporting entrepreneurship in the country. Since the oil price crash of 2013, there's been a lot of pressure on the government of Trinidad and Tobago to diversify its economic portfolio and cut social spending. But to the country's credit, the public health service and free tertiary education programs are still largely intact. Now, at this point, I partially feel I need to move on to my next chapter. But I feel I would be doing a disservice to the legacy of Caribbean socialism if I didn't mention Maurice Bishop and the New Jewel movement in Grenada. One of the more recent examples in Caribbean history, Bishop and his movement ousted Grenadian President Eric Gary from power in 1979. Born to Grenadian laborer parents on the island of Aruba, Maurice Bishop supported the short-lived West Indies Federation, a political union consisting of Jamaica, Trinidad and Tobago, the Bahamas, Grenada, Barbados, the former British Leeward Island colonies of Antigua, Barbuda, Montserrat, St. Christopher, which is now known as St. Kitts, Nevis, Anguilla, and the British Virgin Islands, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, St. Lucia, and Dominica. The West Indies Federation sought to become independent as a single political entity like the Canadian Federation had. West Indian nationalism continued to be a high priority for Bishop even after the Federation dissolved. And while he was a student in Grenada in the UK, he began to develop his political ideas. The 1959 Cuban Revolution inspired him as well, and he began to read the works of black liberation scholars like Julius Nairi, who I told you about earlier, and Frantz Fanon, the Martinican psychiatrist and political philosopher. While studying in England in the 1970s, Bishop was also introduced to the works of Marx, Lenin, and Mao, but Nairi's Arusha Declaration had the most profound effect on him. He envisioned a Caribbean-style autarky where resources were shared amongst the different islands to promote unity and combat economic inequality. After receiving his law degree in the UK, he returned to Grenada and defended striking nurses at St. George's General Hospital and organized the MAP Movement for the Assemblies of the People in Martinique in order to spread the ideas of Tanzanian-style socialism in the Eastern Caribbean. Following the Leninist ideal, MAP centered its activities around the villages to build a base of support that was both rural and urban. In 1973, MAP merged with the Jewel Movement to form the New Jewel Movement. After being arrested and beaten by Eric Gary's government in 1973 while en route to a meeting with local Grenadian businessmen, an incident which became known as Bloody Sunday, Bishop and the New Jewel Movement joined a demonstration against Gary and his government where his father was shot by police and Bishop realized that his movement needed a stronger base of support in urban areas and within the workers' unions. So for the rest of the 1970s, Bishop worked as a lawyer defending workers and unions and traveling around the Caribbean, meeting other socialist organizations and learning from them. In 1976, he was elected to Grenada's parliament as an MP for St. George's Southeast and was the leader of the opposition until his party staged a coup in 1979 while Eric Gary was addressing the UN in the U.S. 
As the new prime minister of the People's Revolutionary Government of Grenada, Bishop suspended the old constitution and strengthened Grenada's ties with Cuba, the Soviet Union, and China. He built a new international airport in the southern part of the country, which was renamed in his honor in May 2009. His core efforts were centered around workers' rights, women's rights, and poverty reduction. He introduced free public health initiatives, tackled illiteracy, and raised the literacy rate by 95%. And through nationalization of industries and increased public spending, lowered the unemployment rate from 50% to 14%. Most of the funding for the airport and the new roads and social housing came from Cuba. And so then U.S. President Ronald Reagan feared that Grenada was attempting to use its new airport to provide the USSR with an airbase to attack the U.S., Reagan then began planning an invasion of Grenada. In 1983, Bishop was arrested by his deputy prime minister, Bernard Cord, and he was only freed after large public demonstrations. He was later recaptured and executed by a People's Revolutionary Firing Squad. This led to mass civil unrest, and the OECS, which is the Organization of Eastern Caribbean States, appealed to the U.S. for help, which then prompted Ronald Reagan to launch his long-planned invasion of Grenada and the end of the New Jewel movement. As I explained in an earlier episode, the global north is a term used to identify highly developed economies, sometimes but not always former colonial powers. In contrast, the global south is the generally accepted term to identify less developed economies, usually, but not always, former colonies. For both Global North and Global South countries, tenets of socialism such as wealth distribution, state or social ownership of the means of production, worker self-management of uh, enterprises, are all used to circumvent or prevent the excesses of capitalism and the inequalities that stem from it. But in the Global South, there's the additional element that normally requires negotiating a new dynamic with the Global North. And this usually produces two very different kinds of socialism. In the Global North, democratic socialism is the most commonly used a form of market socialism grounded in humanism but is not explicitly tied to the Marxist definition of socialism where it is a transitory state to full communism. In most global north democratic socialist countries such as Denmark, citizens pay taxes on their income and spending and then these taxes are used to fund state-run health facilities, universities, and child care schemes and public transportation. Like the Danish VAT, which is a value-added tax. It's a tax on everything that's built into the price of everything that's manufactured or sold in the country. And it's one of the highest in the world. But the Danish don't pay much tax after that. They might pay like import duties. But if you don't want to pay import duties, you just buy Danish goods, which sustains the Danish economy. And they do enjoy one of the highest standards of living in the world, according to most global indexes. What makes this all possible is that Denmark has the advantage of not being a former colony and thus does not have foreign business interests capitalizing on its natural resources. Denmark owns approximately 95% of its natural resources, which include oil and natural gas, chalk, salt, limestone, sand, and gravel. 
any lands that are not owned and operated by the Danish government are owned and operated by Danish companies who pay Danish taxes, which makes funding their social democratic schemes much more feasible. In comparison, for say the West African nation of Ghana, 85% of the resources in the country are owned by non-Ghanaian entities. That is not the government or Ghanaian nationals. This means that the wealth generated from Ghana's resources largely flows out of the country. That makes as a prerequisite to enacting socialist policies like universal health care, Ghana would need to have a similar setup to Denmark, where the wealth of Ghana enriches the nation of Ghana. Ghanaian independence leader Kwame Nkrumah saw how Great Britain achieved universal health care with the National Health Service, largely due in part to Great Britain's access to Ghana and other Commonwealth nations' skilled workers. After World War II, uh, the economy of Great Britain pretty much needed to be rebuilt. They had been fighting back the Nazis since 1940 and needed to call in loan after loan from whoever could give them the money so that they could rebuild their infrastructure and provide services to their citizens and jumpstart their coal industry, their oil and gas industry, and and, uh, their agricultural industry. So, as a means of placating their citizens, Great Britain decided to enact the National Health Service. And they didn't have a whole lot of skilled nurses within their population. So, what did they do? They called on the Commonwealth. They offered to settle them in housing and give them training and everything like that. And so you had thousands of Asians and Africans and West Indians from the Commonwealth leave their countries, talking skilled workers here, a substantial portion of the tax base, leave their own country and go to Great Britain to help them establish their national health service. They stay, they buy houses, they pay taxes in Great Britain, and that is what's called brain drain. When all of the skilled workers in your country, and I mean, I'm being a little bit dramatic by saying all, but when a substantial portion of skilled workers in your country leave to go to the mother country, your former co- the former colonial overlord, and live and work there, build houses, raise children, spend all their money there enriching that country instead of coming back and working and living and raising their children and providing to the tax base of your own country, that's brain drain. And so a lot of sub-Saharan Africa and the Caribbean and Asia is still suffering from brain drain where their best and brightest are adding to the tax base of these European countries in the United States and Canada and not adding to the tax base and also the talent pool of their own country. And so that makes enacting social democratic policies like a national health service that much harder in a country like Ghana. So for the global North, the challenge for democratic socialists is to maintain their stances outside of their borders because it seems hypocritical to advocate for the rights of workers to self-manage and share in the profits of their labor at home while then suppressing the right of workers in the global South so that you can capitalize on the labor that they provide.
Next episode, I will talk about the history of socialism in Europe, North Africa, and the Middle East, and Asia and Oceania. I will also break down market and non-market forms of socialism, as well as Marxian versus humanist socialism. Join me next time for more Musings on History.